Welcome to Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to Dr. Carolyn Furlong, Assistant Professor at McEwen University. She is currently educating and inspiring the next generation of geoscientists. Today, we'll be discussing the Sunset Prairie Formation with reference to Carolyn's scientific research papers titled The Sunset Prairie Formation, Designation of a New Middle Triassic Formation between the Lower Triassic Montney Formation and the Middle Triassic Doig Formation in the Western Canadian Sedimentary Basin, Northeast British Columbia, as well as Sedimentological and Ecology of the Middle Triassic Anisean Sunset Prairie Formation of the Western Canadian Sedimentary Basin. Some highlights include discussing what leads to naming a new formation. We're rocking out today with Carolyn Furlong. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Good morning, Carolyn. Thanks for joining me today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to be talking about the Triassic Formation nomenclature that's been revised. So now in Northeast British Columbia, between the Doig Phosphate and the Montney, the Sunset Prairie Formation is being recognized. So what makes the Sunset Prairie distinct from the Montney and Doig? The Sunset Prairie is a really interesting formation. Um, it has some characteristics that are similar to the underlying Montney and other characteristics that are similar to the Doig formation. Um, but then there are other characteristics that are completely unique. So I often refer to the Montney as this sort of love child formation between the Montney and the Doig because it has some characteristics of both, but also have characteristics that are completely different. So it's similar to the Montney in that it is predominantly made up of siltstone, but the Sunset Prairie also has some uh, sandstone intervals. It's similar to the Doig because both the Doig and the Sunset Prairie have phosphate material, and so that can really affect some of the, um, the petrophysical logs that we see in the subsurface. So the Sunset Prairie itself is sedimentologically ichnologically and paleontologically different from the Montney and the Doig. So we've already mentioned that it does have some sandstone intervals that are present within the formation. And these sandstone beds are pervasively bioturbated, so they have a lot of trace fossils in them, which are representative of organisms that burrowed through the sediment before uh, or during deposition and before the rocks became lithified. And we also get body fossils within the Sunset Prairie, which we don't really see within the Montney Formation. And then finally, the uh, Sunset Prairie is Middle Triassic in age. So we can use conodonts to determine that the Sunset Prairie is Anisian, which is a part of the Middle Triassic uh, time period. And the Montney is... Uh, predominantly made up of lower Triassic age strata, whereas the Doig is middle Triassic in age. So based off of these different characteristics, that's what makes it different than the Montney and the Doig. So it's really this aging of the conodonts has given you a key understanding for where it fits um, age-wise. And then the trace fossils and the body fossils have really made it stand out and pop. I think you mentioned one of your papers as well that the Trace fossils are larger in the Sunset Prairie than you see in the Montney, hey? Yeah, they are. And we see this pervasive bioturbated nature 
to these um, siltstone to sandstone beds that you don't really see elsewhere in the Motney. So in the Motney Formation, when you see trace fossils, they're very isolated through the rock. Um, or when you have pervasively bioturbated intervals, they're very localized. Um, so there's lots of bioturbation in the uh, ring border delta, um, kind of near the border of Alberta and BC. But as a whole, at a basin scale, we don't see these bioturbated intervals within the Motney. But the Sunset Prairie, we do see these bioturbated intervals on a regional basin-wide scale. Yeah, so the Sunset Prairie is a lot larger. Um, what are some of the things we've started to dive into it a little bit here uh, that make it stand out in core and even on wireline logs? Can you recognize it? Yeah, so that bioturbated nature of the Sunset Prairie is really diagnostic of the formation. And the bioturbated intervals that are pervasively bioturbated are interbedded with non-bioturbated or minimally bioturbated facies. Um, and so this interbedding can occur on decimeter scale or meter scale. And that by the interbedding occurs basin-wide. So it's not just this local feature that we see. Now within well logs, there is a general increase in resistivity at the base of the formation. And this is associated with the um, base of the Sunset Prairie being sandier than the underlying Montney formation. But similar to the Montney formation, uh, the gamma ray can be challenging to use to determine lithology. Um, but we can also use uh, characteristics in the gamma ray to um, figure out where the sunset prairie begins. And you commonly see this low gamma signature that's associated with those bioturbated sandier beds. Um, but you also can see dramatic kicks in in the gamma that are associated with phosphate. And these can kind of help you uh, map out some of the pair sequences that are that occur within the morning, or within the sunset prairie formation. Yeah, it's really the faces that are driving the changes in the gamma ray logs that you can see that sandier interval. So we'll jump into that a little bit further. But I'm curious, how was the name chosen? Yeah, so in order to name a formation, it has to be based off of a type core that is designated in a publication. And we did that back in uh, 2018 in a series of papers. Um, and we designated the type core as this Shell Ground Birch 1629-7920 west of 6 core. So this core is located near the hamlet of Sunset Prairie in BC, which is located about 35 to 40 kilometers west of Dawson Creek along Highway 97. That sounds like a very peaceful place to live. Yes, very small little hamlet. <laughs> so you talked about having the type core to recognize it as a formation. Is there any, and the publications, is there anything else that needs to be done to kind of recognize a new formation? Yeah, there's actually a guideline that's outlined by the um, North America Commission on Stratigraphic Nomenclature. And it's a publication called the North American Stratigraphic Code. And it outlines how you name a new formation. And this can be based off of um, the lithostratigraphic formation. It could be a biostratigraphic zone, uh, allostratigraphic zone. Um, it, that publication outlines kind of all of these different types of uh, stratigraphic nomenclature that you can start to name. 
And so for a lithostratigraphic formation, there are some qualifications that need to be met. So um, first, you need to have uh, a distinct lithologic character. So it has to be uh, distinctive internally. Um, it has to have distinct lithological character that's um, internal of the formation. And it has to be different than the overlying and underlying uh, units of rock. And some of these lithologic characteristics can be based on uh, a chemical or mineralogical component. It can be the texture or um, other uh, uh, supplementary features like colors or sedimentary structures or bioturbation, um, or it could even be the age with the conodonts. Um, and then it has to be mappable and have some sort of thickness to it. So when you're uh, naming a new formation, it actually has to be mappable and be kind of, you can physically see it and there's some sort of thickness to the formation. So it's not just a very localized uh, feature. So when you're naming a new formation, you need to pick the strata type or a, a type core or outcrop. Um, then describe the interval, the boundaries and wireline signatures if it's in the subsurface. Then you also have to have maps and cross sections of it to show that mappability and thickness of the interval. And then you publish it in a peer-reviewed journal. Must be kind of exciting to find a new formation and go through that process. Um, in your paper, you did have some nice cross sections and maps. And how thick does it become again? Yeah, so the total thickness of the formation, um, it sort of ranges uh, from a zero edge to the east. And it can be up to about 75 uh, meters in total thickness to the west. But generally, the thickness kind of ranges from about, say, 30 meters or, uh, or 30 meters or less. That's pretty significant. And it met all the other criteria you mentioned, too, about the dating and the different lithology and then the bioturbation. So quite a few reasons to make this a new formation. Definitely. One of the things that uh, I know you've looked into quite a bit is the facies, um, and there's seven facies. Five of them you interpreted to be depositional environments along a siliclastic ramp setting, um, going from proximal uh, to distal environments. Do you want to give a high-level overview of each of these facies? Yeah, so the five main facies can be broken into two main categories, which are minimally bioturbated facies and then pervasively bioturbated facies. So the first two facies are the non-bioturbated or minimally bioturbated facies, and they consist of fine to coarse grain siltstone with sedimentary structures that include uh, faint planar laminae, uh, discontinuous laminae, and some stark ripples. Uh, they do have some trace fossils, um, and few body fossils are present within this facies. But um, you don't really have a lot of um, trace fossils or body fossils present. And then the other three facies are uh, pervasively bioturbated facies. And they're distinguishable based on the different trace fossils that are present, as well as the different grain size between the different facies. Um, so the first two bioturbated facies, or pervasively bioturbated facies, consist of fine to coarse grain siltstone. And they have uh, trace fossils that are associated with deposit feeding uh, forms. So like planolites, paleophycus, 
uh, phycocyphin, pachycnis, and zoophycus. And these are all generally horizontally oriented. So you can think of the organism kind of moving horizontally through the sediment, rearranging the grains of the sediment, and leaving behind these trace fossils. The final bioturbated species um, consists of fine-grained sandstone, and it has a more diverse suite of trace fossils that are present, and some of them are vertically oriented. And these can include Roselia, Asherzoma, Cylindricnus, and Diplocraterian. And these traces are commonly associated with filter feeders and domicile structures, so living uh, homes of different organisms. The pervasively bioturbated facies also contain body fossils that include bivalves, gastropods, brachiopods, echinoids, and crinoids. And so in general, when we are talking about these five main facies, they, uh, they correspond to, uh, to a bathymic bathymetric gradient um, <laughs> along this ramp setting. And so in other words, when you go from facies one to facies five, uh, facies one is your most distal that's deposited in deeper water offshore environments. And then you move through the different facies to facies five, which is your coarsest grain facies that has um, the most proximal expression of the preserved depositional environments and is likely deposited within the lower shore face. It's nice how you've divided it into the two main categories, the pervasively bioturbated and then the low diversity bioturbation. Do you think the low diversity looks a little bit like the Montney if it wasn't paired up with the other facies? Definitely. And that's the difficult part of trying to figure out where the Montney ends and the Sunset Prairie begins, especially within more Western localities, because as you move more to the West, you're going to be preserving more of those distal environments because that's basinward. And so you are having the planar laminated uh, facies of the Montney that can be overlain by planar laminated facies within the Sunset Prairie. And so if you have that situation, you're going to need to be able to use um, different well log characteristics, if there's core available, or maybe that's where we really need to do some fine scale, uh, detailed um, conodont biostratigraphy to really pinpoint down where that boundary is. So what the other two faces could be helpful too in identifying some of these um, boundaries. You talked about the glossopharyngites and lag deposits. Where do you normally see these and what's significant about them? Yeah, so both of these facies can be observed within the Sunset Prairie Formation, but can also be observed at the boundaries. Um, so a glossopharyngites surface represents a firm ground that has been burrowed. So to produce a firm ground, you need to have a depositional hiatus between an erosive event that can expose this firm ground and then the sedimentation that overlays it. So a firm ground is a somewhat compacted or consolidated uh, uh, surface that isn't lithified yet. And then organisms can burrow into that and they live within the substrate. And then after you have sedimentation that occurs um, that will um, sort of kill off those burrowing organisms. So a glossopharyngitis surface or 
a glossopharyngitis demarcated discontinuity surface is commonly associated with this hiatus of sedimentation. It's also commonly associated with a uh, transgressive erosive event. Um, and we can see this commonly within the um, sunset prairie formation itself. Now, the other type of um, deposit or the last species that we have in the sunset prairie is a lag deposit. And this is kind of a catch-all species for coarser grain material um, that is present within the sunset prairie. And it's commonly um, localized within thinner stratigraphic beds. Um, so the, the um, lag deposit itself is commonly made up of clasts that are less than a few centimeters in diameter. Um, usually they're less than the eight centimeter wide uh, core diameter. Um, but we can also have sand grains as well. Within these lag deposits, there's it's common to have phosphate material, so phosphate grains and nodules. Um, and there can actually be some bone material and fish scales and fish bones um, within the lag deposits themselves. And so these lag deposits are commonly at the top and the base of the sunset prairie formation, but they can also separate out those pair sequences um, within the sunset prairie formation itself. So how many parasequences of these species do you typically see? Yeah, so parasequences, for those who don't know, are these sh uh, shoaling upward or coarsening upward successions. So they represent packages of rock that um, were deposited in slightly deeper water and then to shallowing water over time. Um, parasequences are used as a building block within sequence stratigraphy and their stacking pattern and overall geometry can provide a great deal of information regarding the changes in relative sea level over time. Now, within the Sunset Prairie Formation, there are uh, three parasequences that are shown uh, basin-wide that uh, have this general uh, bathymetric gradient of the facies. So starting at the bottom of the parasequence, you have more facies one, which coarsens upwards into facies five. And so within each pair sequence, we're generally moving from a offshore to lower shore face environment. So do you find as you uh, move geographically, do you see three pair sequences or do some of them get eroded out and you go down to one or do they just thin? What happens to the pair sequences as you move? Yeah, so... As you're mapping this interval and in the subsurface, uh, you can see that the pair sequences sort of change their location through time and where they're preserved is really based on the accommodation that's available as well as um, how much has been eroded away from overlying unconformities. And so because the Sunset Prairie sits between the Montney and the Doig Formation, um, there is it adds complexity to the overall sequence stratigraphic framework of the of Triassic strata because now we have this additional formation that has um, these retrogradational or transgressive uh, stacking patterns of the parasequences that suggest um, relative sea level rise. But in the underlying Montney, um, we have in the upper Montney, we have relative sea level fall. 
And so we have this between the Montney and the Sunset Prairie, we're having this sea level change that's then preserved within these pair sequences that show smaller scale relative sea level changes as well. Now, the getting back to your question, where do the three pair sequences, where are they preserved? Um, it kind of depends where you are within the basin. Um, there are some structural features that influence where uh, there's more preservation of uh, different packages versus uh, where there are thinner packages. Um, but overall, you can typically see at least um, one to three parasequences across the basin within different areas. Yeah, and the structure is so important. In the Peace River Arch area, there's been quite a bit of faulting. You have a really nice fault map of that. So, it, you know, it really affects the thickness where parasequences can be deposited. Um, do you see any other changes from the structures? Um, so I, when I was mapping, I kind of looked at this broad regional scale and compared my thickness maps and parasequence maps um, to pre-existing maps that have uh, shown structural features. And when you overlay these structural maps on top of my isopacks, you can start to see where there are these um, subtle or sometimes very great thickness changes um, across the um, basin. And so for me, I haven't done a lot of detailed studies to see if there's any um, other things that the structural maps and faulting can tell you in regards to the um, Sunset Prairie. But on a uh, basin-wide scale, we can definitely see that some of these large faults that are associated mainly with the um, Fort St. John Graben system, they were um, active during the time of deposition of the Sunset Prairie and were probably active after and um, made it so there was differential erosion occurring in different areas. Yeah, it's a really complex area. Another thing that's kind of different and interesting about it, you know, the doig above contains the phosphates and then the Sunset Prairie also contains the phosphate. We talked about it being at a phosphatic lag a little bit. Where do you think the phosphates come from and what's the significance of it? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I get this asked a lot. <laughs> and the short answer is, I don't know. Um, there's a lot of different types of phosphate within the Sunset Prairie. Uh, there's nodules that might suggest some sort of early diagenesis of the phosphate kind of precip precipitating out within um, the sediment. There's also angular clasts and grain uh, or sand-sized grains of phosphate that may suggest that the phosphate material was transported. There's also a lot of bone material. So I mentioned that there was fish bones, but we can also see um, large invertebrate bones as well within these lag deposits. Um, so you can think of ichthyosaur bones, um, rib bones being uh, present along these uh, lag deposits. And so all of that material uh, has phosphate in it and will um, has kind of accumulated within these phosphate lags. And so for some reason, the ocean chemistry was enriched in phosphate, and this might be due to upwelling or some other processes. But I think there's a lot of uh, research potential within uh, this idea of kind of understanding the phosphate, both within the Sunset Prairie as well as within the Doig phosphate zone. Yeah, it's really interesting to talk about the phosphate. 
When do you think we'll start to see some production data from the Sunset Prairie? Yeah, so the Sunset Prairie is relatively thin where we have um, Montney being produced from today. So generally, the Sunset Prairie is at a, about 10 meters thick or less where there's active Montney production. So it's not really a viable target on its own um, with these multi-stage lateral wells that are fracking um, much thicker packages of strata. Um, however, there might be some upside to uh, to drilling wells closer to the um, Mont or to the Montney Sunset Prairie boundary because that Sunset Prairie formation has um, that sandstone uh, facies to it, which may increase the uh, permeability pathways of hydrocarbons to be within the area. So instead of just producing from the Montney or just the Sunset Prairie, your productions might be commingling between the Montney, Sunset Prairie, and potentially the Doig Formation. Now, if you were to produce just the Sunset Prairie itself, you would have to move quite far to the west where there's no production now. And um, that would be in a uh, the western part of the Fort St. John Graben system in an area called the Hudson Hope Low. So this is kind of west of the ground birch field currently. Um, and this is, the Hudson Hope Low is a topographic low that occurred during deposition during the Triassic. So there's a, a thick package of Triassic sediment that has accumulated there. But there's no production this far west. Um, so maybe if there are some economic changes or infrastructures established over there, um, then this might be a feasible target as long as the hydrocarbons aren't over mature. And it's interesting the way you put that, that it would be more a good reason for explaining some stronger Montney producers. You know, you talked about the boundary between the Montney and the Sunset Prairie being difficult to make out in certain areas. Um, so it makes sense to kind of keep them, keep them together. But, you know, knowing that it's there and that it has this coarser material it could really show some show some upside. I also like how you talked about the structural play of it. You know, it comes comes together where it's thicker, um, potentially some more opportunity there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This Well, this was great. It's really fun to learn about a new formation. Um, I know it's one that you've talked about a few times at a conference and thanks for sharing it all today. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great chatting with you. Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.ca or send us an email anytime. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thanks for joining us. Until next time. <laughs>